The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I'm sure you won't mind if we take a look around. I wish you'd quit asking since it's obvious you're going to do it anyway. It's just a waste of time. Good manners, madam, are never a waste of time. Civility, gentlemen. Always civility. July 5th. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to the show today. On this Thursday, July 5th, while we're right into the middle of summer, starting to get humid out there again, I think it's going to feel a little bit like summer for the next little while. Um, before we, we begin, just a quick apology to those of you who might be tuning in to hear a discussion about guns, gun control, and self-defense, as I announced at the end of last week. Uh, not to fear, though, we're just being postponed by one week. Our scheduled guest had some unexpected uh, events come up, and that's what live radio is like, I guess. So we will follow up with uh, that issue next week, again, if everything goes okay. And uh, just before we, be- we begin, I always tend to forget this week by week, and, you know, I really have to thank Ira Timothy in the, in the control booth. He's running the show in there, steering the ship. He's the guy who answers your calls if you call in to join us at 519-661-3600. So uh, he'll be the first guy to greet you. And uh, today's show, not about guns and self-defense, although maybe there might be some elements of that in this. But uh, one ballot, two choices. We'll be dealing with that a little later in the show about the upcoming referendum that you are all going to have to know about by October 10th if you intend to vote in that election. I'm going to talk about government doing good as well a little later on. Uh, you know, people think uh, that that's the main function of government is to, quote, do good, whatever good might be perceived to be. And if we get time and I can get it, get, squeeze everything in, we'll be talking a little bit about television, TV technologies, and issues of that nature. But first, looks like, uh, you know, I've been doing this show long enough now that I can actually do enough follow-ups to issues discussed on previous shows. And uh, one of the interesting ones that crossed my desk over the past week or two was an issue I discussed here on the show back May 24th and on May 10th, and it had to do with gas prices. And uh, we were all complaining about the high gas prices. You notice they haven't really gone under a dollar since then, and it's been, that means we've got quite a demand on, on those gas supplies. But back in, uh, where was it here, May, we had uh, Ontario PC MPP Joe Toscona had a private member's bill 228, which which fell with when the government uh, prorogued for the season, but that was the gas prices notice as act, which in which they wanted to uh, uh, force gas companies to tell you about price creases, increases three days in advance, and I suggested at that time that's going to cause a panic, and uh, also later on I also talked about. Uh, the situation in, in Iran, and the, Iran is now rationing gas. And so now I have confirmation of all of this. There's an article appeared in the June 2807 National Post by Frederick Dahl, and the headline reads, Despite swimming in oil, Iran will ration fuel. So here you have the, the world's fourth largest oil exporter, Iran, imposing fuel rationing for at least the next four months. You can, that means probably a lot more. And uh, in response, a lot of Iranians set 19 gas stations ablaze after government announcements were made that this was going to happen. Uh, quote from the article, Despite its huge energy reserves, Iran lacks refining capacity and must import about 40% of its gasoline. Nonetheless, Iranians enjoy some of the cheapest gasoline prices in the world. Now, you want to know why? Here's the reason. Fuel subsidies cost the government at least $2.2 billion a year and leave the economy dependent on imports at a time when Western countries are escalating the pressure on Tehran's nuclear program. So on May 22nd, which was uh, just about the time we were talking about this issue, just a couple days after, 
the government raised the liter price by 25% to 1,000 reals, which is 11.5 cents per, uh, per liter. And uh, at the time I was talking on May 10th, uh, it was said there was around 9 cents a liter, so that makes sense. And, but still, this is a fraction of its cost. In other words, even at the raised price, they're not paying the cost of producing the fuel. And it's still among, of course, the cheapest in the world, like no kidding. But, uh, you know, there's talking about the president of, of Iran. He's decided rationing and price rises are the only way to curb demand and help Iran to achieve self-sufficiency. So, you know, the day that they put this through, drivers rushed to fill up after the ministry said the scheme would finally go ahead after weeks of confusion. Private cars get about 100 liters of gas a month in the rationing. Now, if I think about my car, my car is a large car, and it takes 65 liters if it was actually empty. And uh, so I could fill up one and a half times a month. Now, the irony is I don't even use that much gas personally, but if you were moving, you know, driving from uh, London to Toronto, uh, you do that even once or twice a day, that's it. you got a one-day ration there, and you're done. But uh, interesting, too, since the 2005 election of the current president... Inflation has risen to 30% and living standards have fallen. Well, no kidding. Now, this sends flags up, you know, my, my hair goes up the back of my neck. Really interesting observation I had. First time I ever really got interested in anything to do with history or economics or social studies in that sense, because most of it was just unrelated facts so much. But I remember one time in high school, grade 12 or 13, uh, they had grade 13 back then, um, sitting in a history class, and our history teacher out of the blue says that every war is preceded by a period of inflation. Although, of course, not every period of inflation is followed by a war, but certainly that's a danger signal. And when you see a country, you know, I, I wanted to find out why. That's a, now, there's something you can latch on to, a consistency, something that you can relate to. And, if you're, of course, if you're, if you're in a country that's say, having 100 200% inflation, you can understand the pressure on a country. Imagine your rent going up uh, two and three times every, every few months, you know, not by a few dollars, but literally doubling and tripling. That's going to put some pressure on a country, and sometimes war is the way they settle that pressure. Iran's population is twice that of Canada's, at about 70 million, and its economy has been stagnant for decades, which accounts for why they don't even have enough gas, or gas you know, refinery stations to... to, to <laughs> refine their own material. It's just unbelievable. And of course, here's the danger signal. The president blames his country's poverty on a plot by Western powers. He says the only answer is to confront the United States and Britain. But domestic critics say the economic, re economic recovery is possible only if Iran opens up to Western trade and investment. And of course, that's a given. You need to have that capital in order to invest in the, in the, in the capital, you need to create uh, the gasoline. So there's a classic example and a demonstration of what we were talking about before. You have uh, only, I didn't even go to that extent where people were setting things on fire, but that's uh, you know, a major danger. Now, turning to a completely different story that I've been watching lately, but it ties into something I wanted to cover earlier and never got around to. And I, th I think it's even more timely now been a lot of talk. Uh, you've seen, uh, um, you know, Russian President Putin has been in the United States with George Bush, and they were recently over at the uh, G8 summit, look, you know, working together, and caught uh, George Bush on B BBC the other day, and he was just coming out of a meeting with Putin, and he said something like this. I didn't get it quite. I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but he says, I looked into his eyes and saw a sincere and an honest man. And it was funny because that was in direct contrast to the story that I was going to deal with. And interestingly enough, a lot of the observers on BBC and commentaries said, uh, uh, maybe the guy's got a few blinders on in terms of how he's looking at Putin. And one, one person who was recently right here in Canada was someone I've admired for a long time. And that is former Russian chess champion Garry Kasparov. Now, he's retired from chess for a while, and he's been actually becoming a political activist. And apparently on June 19th, he was giving a speech to the Empire Club of Toronto. And uh, oh, they refer to him as the retired Grandmaster. 
and he was really pleading for outside help to help Russia deal with its problems. Um, Kasparov apparently now, quote, rallies opposition forces in Russia as chairman of the United Civil Front Movement. And here's what he said to, uh, to, the, to some of the people that were at this event, and this is covered by uh, um, Joseph Breen in the National Post, June 20th. Quote, meetings such as the recent G8, oh, and this is Gary Kasparov speaking to the attendees. Quote, meetings such as the recent G8 summit in Germany, at which countries including Canada sat down with Russia as a moral equal, do great damage to the cause of real democracy in Russia. Things are getting worse now. Russian President Vladimir Putin has learned that if he does things in small steps, the West will say little and do nothing, Mr. Kasparov said. We ask that the leaders of the free world stop providing Putin with democratic legitimacy. Now, that's an interesting point because that's also how I've often emphasized, even here on the show, how we lose our freedom is step by step and people don't resist the little steps because, well, it's too much hassle to worry about, you know, who cares about whether you can shop on Sunday or not or who cares whether you have to pay that little extra tax or not until eventually you you don't have any freedoms left. But interestingly enough, too, um, Kasparov commented, in Russian economics, state profits are privatized while expenses are nationalized. Well, gee, I'd I'd hate to have to tell him it's kind of like that here in Ontario, too. (laughs) Ever hear of Ontario Hydro, where you're paying the debt of a company that's supposed to be producing electricity? So, in other words, they're not only nationalizing the expense and and the debt (laughs) while privatizing the profit. Somebody's making money. So, you know, I guess the big question is, why should we be listening to Gary Kasparov? Well, it's interesting, back in uh, 1989, in that period when he was in, in chess championship mode, so to speak, um, he was interviewed by uh, Playboy magazine in November of that year, and it was a very interesting interview. Um, and here's something he said to them, quote, Russia is in trouble. Remember, this is 1989. The economy is on the verge of being destroyed. It is in tragic shape. We have to take strong measures immediately. Private enterprise must be released. Economic activity has to be open to the market, and the people must be given political freedom. It's hard for me to know whether Gorbachev, of course, that's who was there in 1989, is moving so slowly because that's all he can do or because he really doesn't want to change everything. Remember, he is still a communist, he said. And so after talking like uh, the terminator of chess competition and always wanting to win uh, because... uh, if you look at Kasparov, you know, he looked almost like Arnold Schwarzenegger in a way. He's, got, he's a tough guy, and he talked about, talks about chess like somebody might talk about fighting in a ring. And uh, he was asked, he said, you sound like an American, the person asked. And, he, you know, Americans always want to be winners. Well, Kasparov replies, he says, well, that's not American. He says, that's just human. It just proves that Americans are very close to human nature, you know, that there aren't two different types of life, he says. And then he said, and I found this quite incredible, you know, he said, um, he says, I'm looking for the same thing that everyone else is, a normal life where a person can live well and express himself well. It is very important for me to try to bring normal life to my people, the daylight. When they see me in a nice Mercedes that I won after some very hard chess in Germany, I don't want them to think I'm an exceptional case. They should understand this as normal for someone who earns it. It's a kind of preparation for their thinking. I am a fighter, and my greatest fight here is in this country, referring to Russia. And he says, I'm not just fighting for chess and professionalism, but for the future of my people. Well, good luck to Gary Kasparov. Totally the opposite of poor Bobby Fischer, who actually celebrated 9-11 and held America responsible for all its sins. Just a shame. Uh, But there you go. There you have it. When we return, one ballot, two votes, and what it means to you this October 10th. That's why I do this. I'm a stand-up comic, because I really am not good at the actual work of anything. I'm great on the interview, though. Oh, yeah, anybody who's good on the interview knows. Have you ever been on an interview selling yourself? You know what to say. You know what they're looking to hear. And you're, you're just selling yourself hard. And you get that moment of conscience in the back of your brain as you're selling yourself, when you think to yourself, I can't believe the load of crap that is flying out of my mouth right now sitting there saying stuff like, I'll tell you why you should hire me, because I'm a go-getter and a self-starter. I don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. 
That's right, I can do all the work. I can start a job, I can finish the job, I can do all the work in the middle. I don't need anybody's help. In fact, I work best when I'm alone. And yet, I'm a team player. You see what I'm saying? You're listening to Feedback on 94.9 CHRW. Call in now with your questions, thoughts, or opinions at 519-661-3600. This country is governed by ministers making decisions from the various alternative proposals that we offer them, is it not? Oh, yes, of course. But, well, don't you see, if they had all the facts, they'd see all sorts of other possibilities. They might even formulate their own plans instead of choosing between the two or three that we put up. Would that matter? Would it matter? But why? Well, as long as we can formulate our own proposals, we can guide them to the correct decision. Can we? How? It's like a conjurer. The three-card trick. <laughs> you know, take any card, then make sure they pick the one that you intend. <laughs> Ours is the four-word trick. There are four words you have to work into a proposal if you want a minister to accept it. Quick, simple, popular, cheap. And equally, there are four words to be included in a proposal if you want it thrown out. Complicated, lengthy, expensive, controversial. And if you want to be really sure that the minister doesn't accept it, you must say the decision is courageous. And that's worse than controversial. Oh. <laughs> controversial only means this will lose you votes. Courageous means this will lose you the election. You see, if they have all the facts instead of just the options, they might start thinking for themselves. Mm -hmm. And the system works? Works. It's made Britain what she is today. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call in at 519-661-3600. And just a message to the caller who just called in during the break. I just wanted to pass on a very heartfelt thank you for your kind comments, and uh, Nice to hear there's folks out there who are listening who are enjoying this perspective and listening to the show. Uh, if you like it, tell your friends and other people about it. They might like it too. We're uh, not only in the London area, we're also online at chrwradio.com. Now, next subject, one ballot, two choices. That's the name of the official document being put forth by um, the government effectively uh, about the upcoming um referendum we're going to have on the way we will be voting in the future here in Ontario. Now, I took a look at this document, and that last clip tells me a little bit about how I feel. You know, pick any card, and but pick this one. And we've put this together as a way to guide you through your choices. And, you know, they make it sound like it's simple, quick, you know, popular, and all that stuff that you just heard in that last, uh, last little clip there. Well, I don't think uh, it's all that you might cut it out to be. And here's the issue that's, that's really arisen here in Ontario. You might be wondering, why, why are they all of a sudden talking about voting differently? What's, what's wrong with the way we've been voting up until now? Uh, is there any reason to change it, and what's driving it? Well, one of the issues that I see is that our current Ontario governments are perceiving a possible serious electoral upset under the current system and particularly if voters choose an alternative party under the current system, uh, which a lot of them react to. They, they, they regard Mike Harris as being that kind of a threat as well, which is really funny because it's, uh, for this thing, Mike, Mike Harris it wasn't the, the solution that a lot of people thought he was. So, in any ways, to, to address this issue, the government in 2005 established an all-party um, committee to study electoral systems. Now, by all party, that means uh, all the parties in Ontario except Freedom Party, the Green Party, Family Coalition Party, Core Party, Libertarian Party, Communist Party, who were excluded from the process until uh, Freedom Party complained and got all the other parties to at least be heard uh, before the commission, but we didn't have very much input. 
But now, here's the issue of, of how they look at it and what the problem is. Now, they don't like the idea of first past the post, okay? That's just, uh, right now, we have a um, system where the winner in a particular riding, whether he has a majority, like a 50.1% of the voter, or even less, but as long as he has a majority, he takes all, takes the whole riding. And th this is something that apparently they don't like. So here's what they basically want to do. And by the way, that system is known as a single-member plurality, and that's what's uh, referred to as first-past-the-post. Right now, there are 103 seats in the Ontario legislature, but on October 10th, they will already be expanded to 107. That's already a done deal. Now, if Ontario voters accept the Assembly's recommendation to change the way we vote, and that's what they're doing, they're actually recommending that we change it, they will add an additional 22 seats to the Ontario legislature, uh, which will make it just short of 130, which was how many seats we had before Mike Harris, quote, cut back on the size of government. And ironically, even though we go back up to close to 130, it'll still apparently, Ontario will still be the province with the fewest per capita MPPs in the country, even after the change. So they think that our current system is unfair, etc., etc. And they said, quote, we concluded that a mixed-member proportional system is the best electoral system for the province. We hope our recommendation will inspire your confidence. It will increase voter choice and produce fair election results. Now, to change the system, there's going, going to be a double 60-60 threshold. It has to be approved by a majority, which means 50% 50 50 plus one of voters in at least 60 electoral districts and it must win at least 60% of voter support across the province. So that's, a, that's kind of a tough threshold to begin with. But I have to question the premise. Increase voter choice? I mean, if you only have two parties to vote for, how can any change to how you vote <laughs> really increase your choice? The only way you get increased choice is by having more parties per se. And if you're talking about producing fairer election results, uh, fair depends entirely upon the rules, doesn't it? Like, if the rules say winner takes all, then it's fair because all the participants, the voters, the political governments, the, 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 the political parties in the game consented to those rules. And so what would be unfair is to break the rules, which is what the Citizens' Assembly is actually trying to do by changing the rules of how we vote. Now, when I looked at how the procedure was going, I was astounded what was really going on here. And I realize that what's happening is that our votes are being watered down. Okay, because when more people vote and vote more times, each vote has less influence than it did before. Now, this is the, quote, simple system they're going to give us. In the new system, there will be 90 local members. In other words, they're going to get rid of some ridings. There will only be 90 ridings. But they're going to increase the number of seats in Parliament by an additional 39 list members. So in other words, the legislature would be made up of 70% of people voted from the riding and 30% of people selected by political parties on an advanced list, and they get to appoint them. Now, you might think this odd, me being involved with a political party. I don't like this idea. I don't even think political parties per se, other than that loose affiliation that you have with the ideology, should actually have an official role in politics generally. And that's almost what it is. I remember we talked about this many times on left, right, and center, and even Jeff Schlemmer acknowledged it as very much an issue of convention, the whole political party system. Unfortunately, this new system literally cuts out any sort of independence in the sense of having a party list to vote for. But uh, what's interesting is they will split this up, and so what happens is when you get your ballot, you'll be looking at a ballot, and on one side will be a party, and on the other side will be uh, the candidate you want. But what happens is, suppose you vote for a liberal candidate, and you vote for a liberal party as well. You might think that that vote's staying in the riding, but it isn't. That 30% of your vote gets split and goes outside the riding for a party, whereas you really only get to keep 70% of your vote for the, for the actual candidate inside the riding. So 
what is actually happening is that our votes are being watered down in a very dramatic way. You get 70% of your vote, and they call that more choice. You know what this is like? This is like uh, take, taking a $5 bill from you and giving you five loonies and telling you you have more choice as a result of that. That's almost the shell game that's being played with trying to change the system. It may sound fair, and I know it bothers a lot of people that sometimes we have governments that aren't majorities, but this is very clear. If a government cannot govern... In a, or a, polit a political party and a group of people can't govern as if they were a majority, then they can't govern morally by whatever their own moral code might be. It doesn't matter whether they agree with me or not. They will always be compromised with the other parties, which, as the Fraser Institute points out, means more spending in the long term, fewer freedoms, more laws, because everybody's trying to jump in on that government gravy bandwagon. It's like perpetual minority government. There is the, the real danger. So just a quick warning on that. I have so much more I could have said on that. I could have talked about this subject on the show for, uh, oh, I think I got, got about two hours of information here for you. But when we return on the other side of these messages, we're going to be talking about government doing good and does it really. We'll be back soon. So I'm flying here, right, from Alaska, and there's a guy sitting next to me, and I could tell he really wanted me to shut up, and I could tell that... <laughs> You know how I could tell? Because he kept going, shut up! <laughs> could you shut up? Because I'm chatting and chatting and he's busy, you know, flying the plane. And he's like very, very... What I want to know is... But how does this affect the city? I always believed that it would work. We want more of that from you on Feedback. Call in with your questions, thoughts, and opinions at 519-661-3600. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the primary justification for the attack on private property, individual freedom, and I might also add privacy as well, can be found in people's desire for government to do good. What do we say? We say that government should help the disadvantaged. Government should help the, el the elderly. Government should help failing businesses. Government should help college students. Government should help senior citizens. Government should help every, it should help other deserving segments of our society. Well, that's all well and good to say that. But we must recognize that government has no resources of its very own. Now what I mean by that, those programs coming out of Washington to help many citizens, or coming out of your state capitol, they don't represent congressmen and senators and state legislators reaching in their own pockets and sending out the money. Moreover, there's no tooth fairy or Santa Claus giving them the money. When you recognize that government has no resources of its very own, that forces you to recognize that the only way the government can give one American citizen one dollar is to first, through intimidation, threats, and coercion, confiscate that one dollar from some other American. Yeah. Welcome back. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can join us, 519-661-3600. And we're talking right now about government doing good. And that was Dr. Walter Williams giving a speech back in 1995, believe it or not, uh, in the state of Kentucky at that time, where he was uh, enunciating some of his concerns about what happens when government is constantly trying to do good and how it seems to backfire all the time. And this is a very sensitive issue for some people, and I understand that, because to even suggest that the government shouldn't be helping the poor, shouldn't be doing certain things, uh, is just contrary to the way a lot of us think or even feel. 
But there, again, it's, it comes again down to process, and you have to identify what government is and what government can and cannot do. And what is the real motivation often behind uh, what we would call altruism on an international scale? It's interesting. Uh, you know, we've been recently watching all the stuff happening at the G8 summit and all this stuff. And I remember in one of the pieces uh, covering the G8 summit, they were referring to, oh, this was in the London Free Press, actually, back in June. And uh, on a, they had this full-page article, I recall, with all these little charts on it. And one of them pointed out that Africa, its share of world trade has fallen 2%, which is alarming, down from 6% in 1980. So between 1980 and now, uh, their share of world trade has actually dropped, which is not a good thing. You'd think it should be going up. And, you know, we might like to think that we're helping that uh, the subcontinent of Africa by sending them aid, but... In fact, it's because we send them foreign aid so much, instead of trading with them, that Africa is in this kind of trouble. And labor in Africa is so cheap compared to Western, a Western wages that our own leftists here are in some way indirectly responsible for what's going on there. Uh, you know, they need law and order and a contract society and a little bit of capitalism. They don't need a lot of money pouring in to protect local labor so that we don't have to compete with them. You're hearing the same thing coming from China today. Uh, you know, something like in China, it's 83 cents an hour to help, you know, put, put together a car, whereas in the U.S. it averages $73 per hour when you take into account wages and benefits and all the rest. And, of course, the argument is, oh, we shouldn't let them in, that some kind of slave labor, which it is not. You can't compare currencies like that. Or the, the other situation, obviously China has millions and millions of people who are not employed and, are, and they have apparently 10 million a year constantly added to the labor pool. So, obviously, labor is going to be cheap. And where you make money, if that's the case, is on capital and you need capital investment. I remember uh, I had a visitor to my office one time from Ghana, and uh, he actually walked in my office. He was a taxi driver, and he came in, and I asked him, you know, since you've been there so recently, what is missing in that country? And interestingly, he told me the same thing. He says, we want to know that when we sign a contract, it's good, and it's going to be protected by the government. We want to know that a deal is a deal. A promise is a promise. And that really is what he saw as the major issue. Which leads me to uh, someone I haven't really talked about on the show here, an author that lived over a hundred years ago now, and uh, her name is Isabel Patterson, and she wrote a monumental book called The God of the Machine, uh, which basically explains how stuff works in terms of life and human in endeavor. And she wrote an essay in there called The Humanitarian with the Guillotine. And it talked about, and it made an astounding statement, and this was it, it really was challenging. Quote, most of the harm in the world is done by good people, and not by accident, lapse, or omission. It is the result of their deliberate actions, long persevered in, which they hold to be motivated by high ideals towards virtuous ends. And she says this is demonstrably true, and it couldn't be any other way. It just couldn't be. Because she says the percentage of positively malignant, vicious, or depraved persons is necessarily small. Because no species could survive if, if a majority of its members were that way, right? If they were all you know, habitually bent on destroying each other. And she points out that destruction is so easy that even a minority of persistently evil intent could shortly exterminate the unsuspecting majority of well-disposed persons. Keep that in mind when we're talking about terrorism and what terrorism can do. Because, I mean, any one of us, if we went nuts, we could do a lot of damage, and that's just the way it is. We've got technology that, that can make an individual as powerful as governments used to be. For heaven's sakes, the computer on your desk gives you more power than the average government had a hundred years ago. You can contact anyone in the world in, in seconds without a cost. Just amazing. Now she points out too that it has to be understood that when she talks about good people, she means good people. Not, you know, not people who of their own conscious intent would hurt their fellow men or pre procure, you know, wanton, you know, acts that are just of personal benefit to themselves. And she's also not talking about uh, uh, what she called a transvaluation of values where people might suggest, uh, you know, your good is my evil, my evil is your good. No, she's taking it, you know, given the benefit of that, we're talking good people. So she says there must be a very grave error in the means by which people 
seek to attain their end. Something is terribly wrong in the procedure, and, and what is it? Now, of course, Dr. Williams just alluded to part of that. He says, you know, government has no resources of its own. When we send them, we're taking them away from other people and thus impoverishing them a little bit. And there seems to be a belief constantly that when it comes to issues of poverty and helping people that we live in a fixed pie world, which I think is the greatest uh, economic and social illusion that has caused untold damage to people's thinking. It just doesn't work that way. The, the things that we have today, the technologies we have today, were literally undreamt of in days past. You know, it's funny, I'm a fan of science fiction, and you'd think science fiction could predict anything that was coming up in the future, right? But until the Internet came along, in reality, there were no Internet references in previous science fictions. All of a sudden, every science fiction, uh, you know, time travel uh, story had to get in some reference to Internet so they could make it. Make it. They, they didn't even predict this. They predicted rockets. They predicted space flights. But they didn't predict something like the Internet that would put such power in the hands of individuals. Uh, but I Isabel Patterson goes on in, in, ter in terms of addressing what she sees as the political motivation to get into uh, the business of altruism, which isn't the proper business of government anyway, because really, uh, you know, it's not charity what the government does. It's just taken from one person and given to another. I could do that if I wanted to get in the government and just grab your money and give it to even the most needy people. Does that really justify it? But Patterson pointed out that the lust for power is most easily disguised under humanitarian or philanthropic motives, and that it appeals naturally to people who feel a sentimental uneasiness for the misfortunes of others. And then they mix that with a craving for a little unearned praise, most especially, points out Patterson, if they are non-productive. And she points out a little, you know, a little fantasy that we might have all have had as kids. She, you know, she's an amiable child, might wish for a million dollars, okay, and they're just in their minds, right? But they usually intend to, to give a chunk of that away to their friends so that they can be nice to their friends and their friends will like them. But she points out the twist in that little fantasy that we have is that it would just has, have been just as easy to imagine in our minds that our friends also want a million dollars instead of just us and that we have to give them and share our million dollars. See, we like to put ourselves in the middle there. We like to put ourselves in the situation where we are the giver. And, you know, so the child doesn't conceive that persons in need of help can also imagine having a million dollars for themselves and that the double gratification of this is, you know, innocently stipulated. You know, you want to, to have power through doing good. And, she, and Patterson points out that if you carry this through adult years, this naive self-glorification turned to hatred of any suggestion of persons helping themselves by their own individual efforts, by the non-political means which imply no power over others or compulsory apparatus. Now, I have tested that idea in the marketplace so many times, I, I just can't tell you how people will be livid with you, especially if they're really committed to the left, that you even suggest that people can help themselves. And, of course, it's the same thing. Howard Bloom, in his haunting book, The Lucifer Principle, points out that, uh, you know, we explain that our foreign gifts are for development funds and all this, uh, but forgetting that in many cultures, giving things to people is a way of humiliating them. And I think that's a big problem we have in some parts of the world because inherent in the giving of things is that technique to attention, you know, drawing attention to the recipient's lowliness on the hierarchical ladder and that... When you give them something, you're actually saying in a way, well, we're a little bit superior to you. You can't do it. So there's these kind of motivations in the, the lust to do good with government. That's all I will say on that subject. You'll hear a little bit more from Dr. Williams as we go to this break. And when we return on the other side, we're going to talk a little about, a bit about television, but perhaps not in the way you might be expecting. Back after this. But do-gooders fail to realize that... Most good done in the world is not done in the name of good. For example, I mean, you may ask me, if you ask me, Williams, what's the noblest of human motivations? What's that motivation that gets good things done? I would say greed. Now, I'm not talking about ripping off people and robbing and, and fraud and misrepresentation. I'm talking about people trying hard to get more for themselves. 
Now, some people say to me, well, William, since you're trying to win friends and influence people, don't use terminology like greed. Why don't you say instead, enlightened self-interest? Well, that's okay. That's okay. I like greed. Now, let me give you, because you, you, you people don't think of how good greed is. I mean, you have Texas cattle ranchers running down stray cows in the dead of the winter at night trying to feed them, maybe getting kicked in the face by the cows. They're doing this to make sure that New Yorkers have beef on their shelves. You have Idaho potato farmers getting up early in the morning doing back-breaking work, bugs biting them, sun beating down the neck, getting dirt underneath their fingernails, making all these sacrifices just to make sure that New Yorkers also have potatoes on their shelves. Now, why do you think they're doing that? Do you think they're doing that because they love New Yorkers? <laughs> I mean, they may hate New Yorkers. I'm not that wild about New Yorkers myself. <laughs> they may hate New Yorkers, but they make sure that beef and potatoes gets in New York every single day. Why? Because they love themselves. They want more for themselves. Now ask yourselves, how much beef and potatoes do you think New Yorkers would have if it all depended on human love and kindness? <laughs> I feel sorry for New Yorkers. so far? Not yet, although we have come across some very intriguing televised broadcasts. Take a look at this. It's a form of entertainment called a soap opera. The exploration of human relationships is fascinating. Hmm. I can't imagine just watching the story and not being a part of it. That's because you've been spoiled by the holodeck. There's something to be said for non-interactive stories like this being swept away in the narrative. Can't wait to see if Blaine's twin brother is the father of Jessica's baby. Good work. Keep me informed and don't get too swept away. Uh, Aisha. Nobody will know the difference. I'll know, Sharon. He's my brother. How can I face him knowing that our son is his son? All you need to know, Jack, is that I love you. Welcome back. This is Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening to CHRW. Radio 94.9 FM, where you can call in 519-661-3600 if you want to join in the conversation. Don't know what you're watching on TV these days. Uh, I've been looking through the TV times and TV guides that I get my hands on, and it looks like a pretty dry summer so far this year. I'm practically watching nothing in terms of what is being offered on my cable package right now, partly, I guess, because i got a lot of that stuff already on my own DVDs, or I've seen the shows. I mean, how many times can you rerun Star Trek over and over again on the on the Space Channel? But that's not what I'm talking about today. Today we're going to talk about a little, about not what you watch on TV, but how you're going to be watching it and the technology changes that are coming very soon that will affect us all, but most of us might not notice the changes depending on how modern our home technology is. And there are uh, and there and there are issues that are going to affect perhaps even um, the types of shows you watch. I'm hoping they're going to correct some issues. I've in the past talked about uh, some of the problems faced by the television industry and my frustrations and even trying to get a uh, you know trying to follow a show during a season. I noticed that um, ratings have been down, for, especially for the uh, you know the major on-air broadcast kind of networks because. Uh, apparently reruns in the past season have accounted for 34% of programming, which is up from 19% of the year before, which is quite a bit. And uh, a lot of this is blamed because, you know, they have more competition. They're not getting as no, uh, enough people to justify the advertising rates for those first-time showings. And uh, they have competition from specialty channels, many of whom, whom only run reruns. You know, they're just playing uh, old shows or shows that were created by other networks at a time in the past. So the market is busy adjusting, and the CRTC is busy uh, regulating and deregulating, and technology is changing, and the industry is trying to look at 
different things. And this is an issue I wanted to deal with a couple, oh, maybe months month or so ago. So I have been putting this off. Nothing's changed, though. I've got a bunch of articles here, all from around the mid-May period of uh, 07, from uh, the Financial Post. And there are articles talking about uh, everything's going digital, about how they're going to change the rating systems, how they're going to allow unlimited advertising on regular broadcast TV. No more limits to how much. They, they could literally, uh, you could have a show 15 minutes long with 45 minutes of advertising. Hmm. wonder if that can actually happen. But here are a few changes that are coming up. Oh, no, no. Also in the past when I express, expressed my frustrations about finding the shows you want, I personally thought a great way of resolving that issue was pay-as-you-go, pay one show at a time, go online and grab the shows you want for a very cheap and nominal price, and you you can have your TV show and pay directly for it. But apparently, that's not what the market thinks. They're not generally agreeing with the way I was looking at it. And there's an article called Death to Video Downloads, which... um, you know, people do want to watch their shows on TV. They don't want to watch them on their computer. But even so, with other bridging technologies that were coming in to take care of that problem, they're discovering that evidence is emerging that the whole video download idea is not really what it was originally cracked up to be. Paid video downloading, according to a new report from the research firm Forrester, is apparently becoming a dead end even though they're doing a quarter, uh, quarter billion dollars worth of business this year, but they think that's, it's peaking now and going down. And uh, they said that people simply aren't biting. Instead, some networks are more likely to stream their shows for free on their own, and that's already happening, and they embed commercials in those shows. So that was an interesting little thing that came a little unexpected to me. Another interesting item is they're saying that if you're still one of the 10% people who has rabbit ears, on your TV, uh, you're actually going to have a little advantage coming up soon because by the year 2011, uh, all signals in Canada have to be digital. They're not, you can't have analog signals anymore, which apparently you can still pick up with your rabbit ear aerial and uh, it will uh, make your picture clear. It has a high quality improved signal. Now the CRTC says that the main reason for killing off over-the-air analog was to spur Canadian broadcasters into developing advanced services to prevent we Canadian viewers from getting hooked on those bad U.S. cable networks south of the border. Uh, You know they say this is just like uh, when back when color TV came in in the 1950s and 60s and Canada was about five years behind development in the United States which to me is not that big a deal. I'm, I imagine there were areas in the U.S. that were five years behind the United States as well. It's just the metropolitan area that you're in and where the market is, where the most development can take place, especially in a mass media situation such as this. But apparently what was happening then, people used their antennas and pick up the signal south of the border, so they pushed the industry locally to catch up to get people to tune back into our stations. And um, apparently it's going to be a worldwide phase-out. The U.S. is phasing out analog in 2009. Now, if you really don't know what analog and digital is and how that's different to you, uh, not a big deal if you've got the right equipment, but where you really notice the difference is when the signal goes bad on you. You know, analog is more like a signal on a vinyl disc or even on the old audio tapes, but... When you get signal interference, it'll weaken the picture or phase it out temporarily. You know, you get that buzz, but you can still hear the voice, and the picture's kind of snowy, but you can still kind of make something out. And you might hear the sound, or you might, you know, it could be anything. You get a fuzzy picture, good sound, bad sound, fuzzy picture. So even when you got a bad signal, you could sort of make out what was going on. But digital being strictly a binary code, it's either on or off, just like a switch, um... You know, when your when your signal interprets it and it doesn't work, you'll see pixelation, and or the picture will cut out com- completely. You get this all or nothing signal, which is perfectly consistent <laughs> with the concept of digital. Now, I don't know if you're watching it on the air. I think that might be a little more frustrating because I, I remember if the signal was really weak, uh, you could at least make out what was going on in the plot, and and you wouldn't miss certain key sentences. Whereas if digital goes out on you, as good as the picture is when it's there. Uh, I have actually watched shows where four minutes or so just zapped right out and they have this nice little warning on the TV that says poor quality picture. Well, that's real nice. Why can't I at least see the poor quality picture? But there's that. And then another issue there, uh, getting rid of all 
television ad limits on broadcast television in Canada, which are now apparently limited to a 12-minute per hour period. That can go up to anything. But I think this is going to be a test of the marketplace. Are you really going to tune into a station that's going to have, uh, you know, 45 minutes of ads and 15 minutes of programming? You might. You never know. Somebody might pull that off, but I don't see that as being the... Uh, the big thing to attract people. One other thing coming up just before we go with regards to television and how you watch uh, your entertainment, introducing a new uh, lingo to television called Live Plus 3, which is a different way of measuring TV viewerships in homes with the new technologies that, uh, you know, let people watch TV and delete commercials and things like that. So they want to revise a traditional system of measuring TV ratings, which only counts live viewerships of programs. And I think what they're talking about now is when they talk about ratings, they want to include the first three broadcasts of something in in the advertising ratings. Now, of course, that's not for everybody, because some advertisers can't afford a wait time for a second or third broadcast, especially if their message is time-dependent and they want you to uh, attend that football game or go to that event the day after tomorrow. Playing that ad again on uh, on a second broadcast of the show a week later isn't going to be worth that much to them. So you can understand why there are some advertisers who do demand those very, very high audiences. And it's unfortunate that sometimes the show doesn't give them what they want in that sense, but uh, that's the way it is. You lose some good shows that way. That is it for today. We hope uh, you enjoyed the show and that you'll tune in again next week. Hopefully we will be talking about guns and self-defense and issues of that nature. So until next week, we hope you will be joining us again when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right and think right. See you then. Fade into color and color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Women are all about illusion, aren't they? You know what I mean? I mean? First of all, they're not quite as tall as you thought they were because there's some kind of mystery shoe-pant combination floating underneath them. What is that, five feet of shoe and three inches of woman? What is that? And they know how to use makeup and color their hair to look a certain way in a certain light. And they can cover up little imperfections, make their eyes look bigger, their lips look fuller. It's just an illusion. (laughs) And they know how to use fabric and color and cut to draw your eye away from what they don't want you to look at and over to what they might want you to look at. And they know how to cover things up and tuck things in and push things out. And it (laughs) might not even be real things for all you know. It's just an illusion. And men are all about delusion. Uh, doesn't matter what a guy looks like, he's going to look at a woman like that and go, I think I got a shot. Uh, doesn't matter what a guy looks like, he's going to look at a woman like that and go, I think I got a shot. <laughs>